We're in a series right now on I Can Do That. Um, in my office, there's always a word of the day. We're always finding some word that not everyone knows. Today, your word of the day is truism. A truism is something that is obviously true and says nothing new or interesting. So, for example, if I, if I were to come to you and say, I'm just trying to figure out how to be more healthy, maybe how to trim down a little bit, and your answer to me was, well, you should eat right and exercise. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. That, that puts me right on the right road. I know exactly what to do now, right? Or if uh, you came and said, I, I need to fix my finances. My, my, my finances are a mess. And I said to you, uh, spend less and make a budget. Oh, Okay. You know, obviously, obviously that's true. Or, or if I was going to go walk in the desert and you said, uh, drink water and wear some sunscreen, you know, obviously that's what you should do. Or if you were trying to be more spiritual and have a better spiritual life and someone said to you, you should just pray and read the Bible. Okay, but, uh, but how do I do that? How do I do that? So those are truisms. Now, sometimes within a truism, there's more. There's, it's, there's more like how, what does eat right mean? What does eat right mean? I don't know. Other than not eat Snickers all the time, I can figure that one out. What does it mean? There's so many different things that eat right could mean. Um, and, and similarly, what does read the Bible mean? So today, the whole sermon is going to be a truism. It's, a, it's all going to be one big truism, which is read the Bible, people. Okay? Um, but I'm going to try to unpack that. I'm going to try to give you something that you can go home with. Again, this series is called I Can Do That. I can do that, and our hope is, our hope is that you come in here maybe thinking there's things about growing your spiritual life that you can't do, that you can't figure out, that you don't know how to move forward on, and that maybe you can leave here with something, a tip or a, or a trick or a, or a thing that you're like inspired to say, oh, I could do that. I could do that. The way they said it today, I could do that. So I, I've been thinking about I've been, how I read the Bible, how I have interacted with the Bible over the last uh, gobs and gobs of years. And it made me start to think that one of the reasons that it's hard to read the Bible consistently, it's hard to know what that even means, it's hard when someone says, pray and read the Bible for you to be like, okay, uh, is because we get in our minds that there's one or two right ways to do it. That this is the way that I'm supposed to read the Bible. And when I try it that way, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't move my spirit forward. It just doesn't resonate or, or, or do something with me that helps me. And so I end up quitting and feeling all kinds of guilt. And so that has me thinking about, well, how has that worked in my life? How has reading the Bible worked in my life? And, and honestly, a lot of times it hasn't. A whole, a whole lot of times it hasn't. But what I've discovered, what I think is, there's just all kinds of different ways in which I come and experience the Scripture. And it might be helpful. It might be something you can leave saying, oh, I could do that if I thought of it that way. It might be helpful for you to think that there are more than one way to read the Scripture that's right, that's helpful, that's, that's, that's uh, the word came to my mind, prosperous, <laughs> you know, moving you forward. So there are four ways, okay, actually, there are like probably seven or eight ways that I read the Bible, but I don't have that much time, so I boiled it down to four ways. There are four ways that I think are helpful for you to think about, different ways that you might read the Bible. Um, sometimes I read for volume, sometimes I read to study it, sometimes I read empathetically, and sometimes I read it in a meditative way. And so I'm going to talk about those four ways, but again, there's more than that. 
Um, but, but these are things that I'm going to explore this morning. So, volume reading. Volume reading. You all, I, I shouldn't assume, but most of you probably know this, right? You know that if you think about somebody just walking up to you and saying, hey, read the Bible, what, what you might be thinking of is that I should read the Bible. <laughs> like, I should read it from start to finish, that I should get out one of those um, the read the Bible in a year kinds of things, and it started on January 1st, and I'm going to read Genesis 1, and I'm going to just keep going. And, and you've all Many of you have experienced that kind of reading, or, you've, or, you, or you read the Bible by picking a, a book, you know, like let's say I'm going to read 1 Kings, and, I'm, and that's what I'm going to do this month. And so you read large chunks, large sections of the Bible, and that's, that can be very helpful. There's really good things that can come out of that. I think it's helpful to read for volume when you're trying to understand the long arcs of something, when you're trying to understand, like it's surprising to me the role that trees play in the long arc of the Bible. I mean, trees obviously are in the very front of the Bible, and there's the tree of good and evil. And then, the, and then they're all the way in the back where these two trees are standing on the sides of the river, and they're bearing fruit every month. But trees are all through, and they have a very, very fascinating arc of what trees are in the Bible. Sometimes you read, when you're reading for volume, what you're doing is, the positive thing you're doing is trying to just say, what's in here? Like, what's in it? If, if we're going to be Christians, you know, sometimes this comes over you thinking, if I'm going to be a Christian, I probably, probably might want to know some of what's in the book that the whole thing is based on, right? And so you say, I, should, I, I have some responsibility to read through it all. So sometimes you're reading to try to figure out what's in there. Sometimes you're reading to try to uh, see and understand these long arcs. Sometimes when you're reading for volume, the benefit that you get that you don't realize you're getting at the time is that you're hearing words and phrases that are going to come up later. And you're going to be like, oh, I get what they meant now as I think back to there. Like the, like the Lamb of God. The Lamb of What in the world does the Lamb of God mean? You're like, what does that phrase even mean? Well, if you're reading for volume, you would have gone through places where lambs play a very prominent role, and then the Lamb of God starts to take on some meaning for you. Unfortunately, reading for volume also has downsides, right? I mean, you start your yearly uh, reading of Through the Bible, and then you, uh, you're doing great for a few days, and then you're a day behind, and, and you're like, I can still do this, and then you're a week behind, and you're like, I can catch up, and then you're a month behind, and you're like, oh, I'm done. And that's like February 1 or something when that happens. Uh, so it has these downsides where it, it starts to produce all this like guilt in you and, it, and, 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 and even worse, I think it starts to produce a way of reading the Bible in which you're just reading words. You're just like, da 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 and you're thinking about breakfast, right, or whatever. You're thinking about work, or you're, and you're, the words are just going by, and at the end of it, you check, and you say, yep, I did that. Well, did you, right? So reading for volume has these downsides when, they do, when it doesn't, when you don't know what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, second way that I read is I read for study. I read for study. Sometimes I'm like studying. I'm trying to figure out when you're reading for study, it's a completely different pace. It's a completely different feel to it. You're reading for definitions or for interpretation or for historical references or for understanding how people have thought about this concept over time. Usually, when you're reading for study, 
You're, you're doing it with a, 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 a commentary or an online article or uh, someone who's helping you. You're in a class maybe and, and somebody is expo- expounding on a particular set of verses or you're watching uh, uh, um, somebody on YouTube and they're, on, and they're explaining something. But usually there's something more than just the scripture that you have around you. And obviously, it has to take place in Panera. I mean, that's one of the things about study that has to be true, that you have to be in Panera, and that you have to spread your books out all around you, and you have to have colored pencils. Colored pencils are, 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 are required for reading for study. I'm like you, when sometimes when I walk into Panera and those people are there, I'm like, oh, honey, sweetie, I hope that really helps you. But, but reading for study really does, really does. Some of you, some of you, not all of you. Some of you will read for study and that will resonate with you. That will vibrate with your soul. That will get you closer to God. Some of you are like that. I, have, I am like that and I have been even in different periods of my life even more like that. Well, I, one of the times I feel like I was the most close to God was sitting in a classroom listening to, understanding the, the different ways that people through time have interpreted what communion means, what the Eucharist means, and suddenly, and suddenly I felt overwhelmingly close to God. But, but that's not normal. Like, that's not how everybody experiences study, reading for study. But reading for study can be helpful. But I just want to give you a tip about reading for study. If I was your mentor, if I was your coach, and you, were, and you were contemplating reading for study, one thing I would tell you is, if you're reading some commentary, or you're, if you're following somebody, and they're telling you that this position is the only position that the church has ever had, or this position is the only position that's right on this particular topic or that particular topic, there should be some red flags going off in your head. It's just not genuine to say that the church has ever had one answer to these complicated questions. It's fine for your coach, for your mentor to say, this is where I am. But it's not so fine for your coach to say, this is the only way you can think. This is the only way that is right. So reading for study is something that I think is is valuable and, in, and might engage some of you, or it might engage some of you for some parts of your life. He, but here's now, I'm going to take a pause between the first two and the second two. Here's now what I think I'm understanding more and more, is that those two, reading for volume and reading for study, are the two that, in your mind, are right. In your mind are the ways that it works. If I'm not doing that, then I'm not reading the Bible. And when you start to do one of those two and it just doesn't work with you, then you start to think something's wrong with you. You start to get those kind of guilt feelings. One thing I want you to just think about, just think about, what, what percentage of the world over time and over space, over the globe, have had the privilege of reading in one of those two ways? What percentage of the people who have ever lived on this globe have been able to read for volume or read for study? I don't know the number. I'm asking you a question that I don't know the answer to. But I bet it's tiny. I bet the number is in single digits. The number of people who have been privileged enough to have this sitting on a chair in front of them like it's no big deal. The number of people who have the time to read through scripture and to understand it 
is very small, is very small. Sometimes I even play a game with myself. How would my great-grandfather have read the Bible? What would he have expected of himself? Well, for one, he would have read it in Dutch, which put him spiritually way above you and I. But, but, but it was different how people have related to the Bible. And I think you need to understand, as you're feeling guilt, you need to understand this is a highly privileged guilt you're feeling. You're feeling bad that you haven't picked this book up in a week where most people who have ever lived on this earth and who are living on the earth right now today don't have that privilege. That's not even an option. That's not even part of their questioning. Does, does an illiterate person in some part of the globe today feeling guilty that they haven't picked up their Bible enough, right? It's a privilege that you have that one of those two methods is available to you, Right? So I'm not trying to let you off the hook and like, oh, great. He just said, put the Bible down and don't ever pick it up. No, no, no. I'm just saying when those guilt feelings come, one of the things you should do is say, you know what? I bet there's some other way. I mean, I bet there's some other thing that God expects of me, that God wants of me, that God desires for me. Because if that's the only way in, then the road is narrow. I mean, the road is almost shut of the number of people who have had this privilege right? Do you feel that? Do you know that? So there's these other ways that I approach the Bible, that man, that this is not me, that people have approached the Bible for, for all of time. And one way is this empathetic way. So again, if we think back of how people approach the Bible in the past or how people approach the Bible today that don't have ready access to it in ready time, it, it appeared much different they had some part of the scripture in their head that somebody had told them. And they and they've thought about that part of the scripture. And they thought about what it implied, what God was doing in that part of the scripture. They thought about what the characters in that story that they heard were thinking or feeling. They thought about what it meant in the, in the global, in the big sphere, when these particulars were happening to these people. Right? And they probably only had a small chunk of it available to them. This kind of empathetic re reading, this kind of empathetic experience of the Bible is something that I, I have been pushing that I think we've lost a lot of. I think when we, you and me open the scriptures, typically, something happens in our brains as we open the page and we expect to find in there very logical, very specific, very mechanical answers to our questions. Or we expect to read a verse and, try and, and, and take it apart and dissect it and understand what it means and understand what the historical reference to that was and understand and understand and think and define, right? That's, that's just something that happens in your brain just by opening the book because it's how we've been taught to relate to it. One of my favorite Verses, I'm going to help you through a little bit of empathy right now. One of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible is our stories in the Bible. Is this little tiny story in the first chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 1. I'm going to be from about verses 5 to about verse 13 when I tell you this story. But just listen to this story with that part of your mind like shut off. Forget about, forget about what did that imply? What did that mean? What was the Greek? Because I'm not even going to give you the option. I'm not going to put the verses up. So here's Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was this guy, and his name was Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, 
He could trace his relatives back to the priests. Like he knew who his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather was, all the way back to these ancient priests. He was a priest. He was part of that line of Levi, that line of Aaron, that everyone in his time just respected so much. If you were one of those guys, you were one of the very few people in town who was educated, one of the very few people in town who was kind of, uh, in a way, above everybody else. You were one of the very few people in town who could interact with God, who could take the needs of the people and bring them before the holy God, and who could take the words of God and bring them back to the people. These, they served this intercessory kind of role, and, and they were respected. They had respect on the streets and from their neighbors. Now, this guy, Zechariah, he was married to someone um, who also could trace her lineage all the way back to Aaron. Aaron, right? P.S. If you've read for volume, you know who that is. Aaron, the high priest of high priests, the start of it all, right? And so this couple, this couple was revered. They were special. They were set apart. But... And here's the kicker, but they didn't have children. Huh. I mean, there's a contradiction in there that you just can't even imagine. Like they were honored and revered, and they're the one people who can intercess, intercess become the middle man between me and God, and they, and they don't have children. It doesn't even make any sense. Like God loves them, maybe, but God's withheld something from them that, that in, in our society, in our world, means that really God has removed his presence from them in a way, right? This is very strange. I don't understand why they don't have kids, but they are priests. And inside of him, like, just think about that. Inside of him, he doesn't get it. He, he has this, like, I'm on, like, to the external world, I'm honored but I have this flaw, this flaw that is deep, that runs all the way inside of me. Have you ever felt like that? Like the outside world sees you in one way, but the inside world knows that there's something not right about how the outside world sees me. There's something inside of me that's darker than that. There's something inside of me that's broken more than that. There's something inside of me that wonders if God even likes me. And why should he? I mean, you know what I've done. You know who I am. But yet, but yet, I have to walk out of the door every day and do this thing. Like, do this thing that the people love and, and, and they honor me for. So that's him. Like, that's, that's Zechariah. And he's got this huge, huge contradiction inside of his soul. Okay? And so, one day, Zechariah gets picked to go do the worship in the main temple. He gets picked to go offer sacrifices in the main temple. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This only happens maybe once, maybe twice in a priest's life. And they cast lots for it. It's like they roll dice for it, and your number comes It's like a lottery. Your number comes up, you won. You won. You're going to go offer sacrifices. And it's a great, huge honor. But it's also a responsibility because the entire town is going to be like gathered around outside and watching as you go in to the gold-covered, the gold-laden t- 
temple and offer sacrifices, and these sacrifices have to work. Like this is the only, this is the only connection those people outside have to getting their sins forgiven. Like so there's this pressure on you. Okay, so put these two things together. I'm the guy who like people honor on the outside and who inside I'm feeling like I'm not worthy at all, at all. There's something that I can't put my finger on that God doesn't like about me. And if those people out there knew, I don't know. In fact, now, now that I've been picked and I'm walking into this gold-covered room, I'm wondering, is this even going to work? If I offer sacrifices, am I going to just catch fire? or I, What's going to happen? Am I really going to be able to bring God to the people who are out there waiting? Because I can't even bring children into the world. I, I mean, so clearly... Right? Do you feel it? Do you know it? Do you? This is a moment that you're supposed to feel with him as he walks in and identify with him as he walks in. He walks into this temple and he's about ready to give a sacrifice. And <laughs> this is what happens. An angel just appears. An angel, another person is sitting in this room, this gold-covered room that no one else is supposed to be in. An angel is standing there, and he is freaked out, scared. This is poop-your-pants territory, right? This is the scariest thing that's ever happened in your life. And it's, it's, it's just amplified in its scariness because of the disconnection that's in my soul and of the location where I am and the act that I'm doing, all are contributing to my absolute fear of what's going on. So he's standing there. He's like, I think God might kill me now. I think this is the end. And the angel says, don't be afraid. <gasps> right? Don't be afraid. How could I not be afraid? Don't be afraid. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Oh, man. I don't know. I just, I can't get over that story. That story is so amazing. That story, I feel it. I identify with it. I need exactly those words from time to time. Don't be afraid, Kurt. God actually likes you. I mean, you've, been, you've put a lot of energy into this idea that you're somehow, somehow ruined, somehow dysfunctional. Luke, chapter 1, verse 5 through 13. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? This is how Scripture is experienced in all the world, in all of time. This is the thing that I invite you to experience scripture this way. And I, and, I'm t and I think, I really, really think it involves turning off some learning that you've done as you approach the scripture and say, what's happening to these people in here? What is the particular that's pointing at a universal that's true for me as it was for Zechariah? Okay. The last way that I read the scriptures is to meditate on them. Now it takes that idea of like expanding the scriptures and takes it even farther. I meditate on scriptures and, 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 and over the last three years, maybe four years, I've been meditating on this same verse. So you've, 
if you've been here in that time, you've probably heard me say this verse. Because I've stuck with the same one and meditated on it, meditated on it, meditated on it over and over, hundreds of times. Truly, truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Sometimes, most of, most of the time, I don't get past line one. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. Over time, as I've meditated on this verse, it keeps changing, it keeps morphing, it keeps, it keeps coming with me as my life moves. Some days when I'm euphoric, this, this verse is like, yeah, if I find rest. Some days this verse, the rest means the word rest. It means like go to sleep, Kurt, you're so tired. Sometimes my soul just needs, sometimes, sometimes when all of a sudden I realize because of things that are going on in the world that my life is so dependent on God, like, like tomorrow could be completely different than today. Rest means, rest means dependence. My truly, my soul just depends on God. It's just sitting in God's hand and, and really it's out of my hand. This word rest just keeps moving as I meditate on this all the time. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. So I meditate on those words. I repeat those words. Now here's an interesting thing, this next slide. Uh, my wife also meditates on scripture but in a very different way than I. Um, uh, this this way has a name that's called Bible journaling. Some, some of you might do it. There's Bibles that are made just for this purpose, made for people who want to meditate on Scripture while they're doing something, while their bodies are doing something, while they're crafting. So this is the exact same verses um, from my wife's Bible where she was thinking about it. I will never be shaken. You can see that she, you know, that was something that came out to her as she was reading through these verses. But it's interesting that her and I found the same verses that we were meditating on. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. Okay, so in conclusion, I don't know, I don't know what's going to be right for you, but I, but I bet not one of them is going to be right, right. It's not going to be all right. I bet by you trying out some of these, like sometimes do, I think you should read for volume. I think you should understand what's in Leviticus at some point in your life. I think you should read the book of John and, and you should read the letters of Paul. But so, and sometimes you should study things. You should ask people, what do you think that means? And get feedback and get answers and be curious about the meaning and the history of things and how the church has interpreted and thought about certain things. You should ask those questions. But if you think that's the only two ways that count, that make it right for you to read the Bible, you're living in a, a world of privileged guilt. You should read the Bible in a different kind of way. You should read the Bible with an empathetic uh, voice inside of you. You should be listening and hearing the stories and living the life with the people who are in it. You should be meditating on scripture, taking tiny little bits of it and letting it live and expand inside of you over a long period of time. So I encourage you to find, to discover resources that can help you do those various things. I don't think you need to do this all on your own. 
We, again, back to our privilege, we live in such a privileged time. There are so many blogs and so many podcasts and so many YouTube channels of people who are reading Scripture, who are thinking about Scripture, who are interpreting Scripture in all of those ways and more. And you should be an explorer. You should be looking around and finding and seeing what resonates with your soul. And then you should be moving into that. It's my prayer that the scriptures can come alive for you and that you can leave here today and say, I can do that. I can do that. There's something in what he said that I can do. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you. What you've given us is so rich. It's so dense. And it's so beautiful. And it's so meaningful. I pray that we can be people who start to love and start to feel and start to respect the text that you gave us, the scriptures that you gave us, and the people who have thought about it over hundreds and hundreds of years, and how that has shaped and built and expanded our lives and our spirits. May our souls rest in you as we encounter your word. Amen. Amen.